In the spring of 2014, officials at the Department of Homeland Security were facing a crisis at the southern border. A flood of Central American refugees were fleeing violence and poverty in their home countries and entering the United States illegally. As secretary of DHS, Jay Johnson struggled to come up with a solution. His agents aggressively stepped up criminal prosecutions and deportations, and they rounded up entire families, holding them for prolonged periods in makeshift Border Patrol detention centers until a scathing federal court order ruled the practice must stop. Johnson also briefly considered and rejected a plan to separate children from their parents, a proposal the Trump administration adopted last spring. Johnson was one of many voices this week calling Trump's policies immoral and un-American, and the president, under intense pressure, finally relented and rescinded the family separation practice via executive order. But what is Johnson's solution? And did the policies he pursued during the Obama administration work any better? We'll talk to Jay Johnson on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. You know, Dan, when this story really grabbed my attention, uh, when our old colleague uh, first wrote last week, uh, she went down to uh, Liz Goodwin. She was down to the border. She now writes for the Boston Globe. And she was interviewing families, uh, lawyers, uh, uh, public defenders. And she recounted how one public defender said several of her clients have said their children were taken from them by Border Patrol agents who said they were going to give them a bath. As the hours passed, it dawned on the mothers the kids were not coming back. Um, that was such a harrowing scene. Uh, Liz uh, tweeted it, and I think it really first hit home that um, the U.S. government was doing something that we haven't seen in a really long time and has and evokes images of really horrible things uh, by other countries in uh, in the last century. Yeah, it was a chilling um, kind of haunting detail. Um, and uh, not surprised that uh, our Liz Goodwin got that piece of reporting. Um, she's very good at that and very good at, at always finding the human dimension of these stories. And ultimately, uh, that's what uh, moves people. Um, it was those uh, human stories, those just uh, you know, just really wrenching stories of of children being you know ripped away uh, from their parents, uh, which um, had such a had such an impact uh, across the political uh, spectrum. You know, in a very very divided country, uh, there was I think a, a fairly considerable consensus that this was uh, a really terrible thing that was happening. And um, you know, in a way, it just shows how. Um, kind of tone deaf and blind uh, the Trump administration was. They're so focused on on their base. They're so focused 
uh, so single-minded about uh, seeming tough on on border security that just as a pure political matter, uh, they missed uh, you know the, the way the country was going to react to this story. Uh, exactly, and it does raise a perennial question with the Trump administration: How much planning do they do before they uh, begin some of these uh, policies? Uh, how much consulting do they do with somebody like uh, our guest today, Jay Johnson? Uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security during the Obama administration, who faced many of these uh, same issues. Uh, Secretary Johnson, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Michael, Dan, nice to be here with you. I look forward to our discussion. Uh, I consider you both friends, if I'm allowed to say that in this discussion. <laughs> and uh, Not Michael, for the purpose thought... of this interview, though. <laughs> well, we're, yes, All we're right, going to so, keep our journalistic anyway, detachment I... here, Jay. <laughs> Michael, I thought your with one exception, which I'll come back to, I thought your lead-in captured the situation we faced in 2014 well. What's your, uh, what was your objection? Okay, so a little context. First of all, illegal migration as measured by apprehensions on our southern border, and that's the surest guide for how overall attempts to crossing the border are, are trending. Uh, illegal migration is a fraction of what it used to be. The high was 1.6 million apprehensions on our southern border in fiscal year 2000. In recent years, in the Obama and Trump administrations, it is a fraction of what it used to be, ranging in the 400,000 to 300,000 range, owing to a number of things. We've put much more border security on our southern border. That's not just wall. We actually have built a wall, 700 miles of wall or fence, more border patrol agents, more surveillance, more vehicles, more boats, more more planes. Uh, so it is harder to cross our border without being apprehended. But the underlying factors, the economies in Mexico, the United States, are the principal drivers of illegal migration. That's really the, the takeaway here. The push factors that motivate somebody to leave someplace and go someplace else in the first place are what drive illegal migration. And there's only a certain amount of border security that, well, that border security, for the most part, doesn't really make that much of a difference. So it's a fraction of what it used to be, but the demographic has changed. It's yeah. no longer single adults from Mexico. It's now women and children from Central America. And so when I became secretary in late 2013, getting into office 2014, I began hearing these reports of kids from Central America coming to our southern border. And I'll never forget, my wife and I were in California visiting our kids for Mother's Day. And I said to her, we have to take a detour on the way back to Washington. I want to stop in McAllen, Texas. And we did. And what I saw that day, I will never forget, a border patrol facility built for single male adults overrun by kids. It looked like a crude child care center. And that's when I saw firsthand we had a crisis and we had to deal with it. Now, to the credit of our White House then, I said to them, we, we can't cover this up. We can't pretend like this doesn't exist. Let's be proactive with the media in telling them about it and telling them what we're going to do about it. How many, how many Central American refugees uh, or migrants uh, were, were coming in uh, in that period? So I would divide it in thirds. 
if we had, as I recall, 414,000 apprehensions in fiscal year 2014, I think that's the number, it was roughly a third Mexican, a third family units, and a third unaccompanied children. And the latter two categories were coming principally from Central America. And it reached its peak in April, May of, of 2014. And so... And what was the reason, what was driving it at that point? Because the, Very the, plainly, the, what was driving it at that point is the same thing that's driving it now. Poverty and violence in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. But, but those are constants. And that, that, yes. that's been, they've been constants in Central America for decades. Correct. So what explains why you saw the spike in the spring of 2014, and what explains why we're seeing the spike to, now? Well, 2014 I can speak to uh, firsthand. Let me preface this by saying that our intelligence capability to understand the drivers of illegal migration is not great. But what drove the spike in 2014, so far as I could surmise, where A, it, there's a self-fulfilling aspect to this, there's a snowball effect to this, and B, the smugglers, the coyotes, were putting out this message that the United States government is giving out permisos, free passes, to come to the United States, a disinformation campaign to encourage migrants to spend five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 a person to take the journey and, in their hand. Um but at some point you're going to ask me what did we do about it? But well, yeah, no, no, we're <laughs> we're we're getting into that because um, you did want to send a message yes. that um, uh, you were going to get tough, and yes. you did step up criminal prosecutions and um, that's de- de- deportations. Mm-hmm. You began deporting these people, and you began holding um, the parents with the kids in family detention yes. centers. Um, which was designed to send a message you were getting tough. Well, allow me, allow me to explain it in my own terms. <laughs> First, one of the things I did in the midst of this crisis was to consult my Republican predecessor, Mike Chertoff, mm-hmm. and his team. We actually brought in his whole senior team to talk to them about a number of things, including this particular issue. And I'll never forget something Mike said to me. Illegal migration is a very market-sensitive phenomenon. It reacts to information in the marketplace about perceived changes in enforcement policy, and it reacts very sharply. Now, the corollary to that, which I learned from the 2014 experience, is that it may do that, but it will only react short-term, and then it will revert back to its normal trends as time passes. But we did three things, basically. One of the things I discovered, which was pretty amazing, was that out of 34,000 beds for immigration detention, only 95 were equipped for family units, only 95. And because of this new phenomenon, this new wave of migrants, we had to simply expand that capacity. And to be very frank, I made a big deal out of that. We publicized that. Um, You could find easily uh, film footage of me holding a press conference at one of these newly opened family detention centers, uh, and we made a fairly big deal about that. We wanted people to know this was not going to be catch and release. You were not going to be apprehended and then simply released so that you take a bus to Northern Virginia or California, wherever you were going to 
meet up with a family member. Uh, we had to expand HHS's shelter capacity because of the kids. So that's sort of 1B. Uh, two, we put out more aggressive messaging about the dangers of the journey from Central America. Uh, and three, we worked with the Mexican government. And we actually convinced the Mexican government through my counterpart, Miguel Osario Chong, and in a president-to-president discussion, Barack Obama to President Peña Nieto, to step up security on their southern border with Central America. And to their credit, the Mexican government did that, and it was hugely expensive for them. But those three things, when put together, uh, contributed to a downturn in the spike. So by July 2014, we saw a pretty sharp downturn. And by August, um, the crisis was pretty much over. And then in 2015, we had a we had an abnormally low number of apprehensions. It was the second lowest number since 1972. Now, <clears throat> getting back to your question and your lead-in, uh, I have to say prosecuting the migrants was not a component of this strategy. At my direction, we stepped up. We tried to step up the prosecution of the coyotes, the smugglers. Now, the problem there is they don't tend to cross the border into the United States. So that's a little different. But we did not regard... And I didn't think it was really appropriate or worthwhile to be prosecuting migrant after migrant and flooding the federal criminal justice system with thousands of migrants to plead guilty to misdemeanors. Um, I encouraged our people to bring forward all available lawful options, uh, and I continually did that through 2014, 2015, working principally with Tom Homan, who is today the acting director of ICE, and Kevin McAleenan, who is today the commissioner of CBP. Holman being the guy who actually proposed the idea of separating um, uh, parents from their children. But I should point out here, you got slapped down by a federal judge. And I'm looking here at a New York Times story, July 2015, judge orders release of immigrant immigrant children detained by U.S. This is Judge uh, Dolly G of the uh, uh, Central District of California, found that two-year detention centers that were open last summer failed to meet minimum legal requirements, uh, and that Judge Yee also found migrant children had been held in, quote, widespread deplorable conditions in Border Patrol stations after they were first caught, and that the authorities had, quote, wholly failed to provide the safe and sanitary conditions required for children even in temporary cells. Well, there's a little more nuance that is required here. So, first of all, I want to make clear that we were not going to separate families. Uh, that was just some place. That was a place I was not going to go, and that the Obama administration was going to go. And it was proposed so, to you. I mean, it, it the, re, the, the reporting is that it was proposed to me. Uh, I do not recall that specific proposal, but I do know we considered it and rejected it. Uh, I don't recall the specific memo that's been reported, but there was. And this is a discussion of the Flores case, which you just referred to. There was a 20-year-old settlement from 1997 between private parties and the U.S. government. The settlement basically said that unaccompanied children, and I stress the word unaccompanied children, can only be held in licensed non-secure facilities. In other words, not detention facilities. That settlement was between lawyers representing unaccompanied kids and the U.S. government. In 2015, 18 years later, the judge overseeing that case determined that the parameters of the settlement also included families, which frankly was a surprise to us that she had interpreted that document 
in this way. And the way we were able to implement that new interpretation, acceptable to her, was to keep family units in the detention facilities we had for an average of about 20, 21 days. So that's how we, that's how we implemented that new interpretation of that settlement. Now, I have to say, along the way, before we even got to that point, we were beginning to rethink how we were going to use these detention facilities in the first place. Very clearly, they were controversial. There was a lot of political blowback, which I was hearing. And one of my own Border Patrol officials at a pretty senior level said to me when I visited there in the summer of 2015, you know, this is not really a sustainable model because you're only keeping a fraction of family units that were crossing the border and we were trying to keep them as long as possible, but the great majority of them are still being released because you simply don't have the capability to hold them all at the rate at which they were crossing the border. Better to keep them for shorter stays and have a larger population go in, be processed, be assessed for health concerns, evaluate risk of flight in a more reasonable way. And that was the direction we were moving in before Judge G even intervened. Jay, uh, Jay, let me just uh, use this as an opportunity to bring you um, bring this up to the present, um, because now that uh, President Trump has issued this uh, executive order ending the policy of of, uh, family separation, in a way, he's going back to the policy uh, that that you just described, um, holding uh, children with their parents in these uh, detention facilities. Right. They're doing, um, they're and, doing they, you know, what we did in 2014, 2015 is the opposite of separating families. Correct. Right. But that right. too was controversial. Uh, but, but the, you know, the Flores order is still, um, uh, that, that, you know, that, that's still uh, there and, and they're going to have to deal with that. And I think the, the Trump Justice Department is going to uh, go go into court and try to get out from under right. that order so they can keep uh, these families um, in detention uh, for more than 20 days. Meanwhile, I guess they're trying to build new facilities. Um, well, you've you... uh, dealt with uh, Judge G. Um, what do you think uh, the legal prospects are for the Trump administration in trying to, uh, you know, because because Trump has said he's not ending the zero uh, tolerance policy. He's going to continue uh, treating people who cross the border as criminals and prosecuting those cases. How does this play out? That's a good question. I cannot speculate on on what Judge G is likely to do. If you read the order carefully, the executive order, you'll see that it has two components to it. One, expand family detention, go to the Department of Defense, build more facilities, but it's dependent upon getting approval from the judge to reinterpret family detention in this way. And so, um, you know, it's not as if President Trump can wave the magic wand and create these new family detention centers as long as that court order is in effect. They've got to get permission from the judge to reinterpret this in this way. I, I think uh, the, po- the only point I was trying to make is this seems to be a much stickier problem than um, you might uh, you might think from watching cable news. And I just want to read you a tweet. From it's always a stickier problem <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's presented in cable news. <laughs> right. Believe so me. Here's a, here's a tweet from Senator Elizabeth Warren. 
um, about uh, the Trump administration going back to what you uh, were doing when you were uh, in office. This isn't over. This is what she wrote uh, after Trump made his uh, announcement about the executive order. Thousands of kids have been ripped from their parents with no plan to reunite them. And now President Trump wants to create new detention camps for families. Separating kids is unacceptable, but indefinite imprisonment of families is still cruel and inhumane. So if it's unacceptable to separate the kids from their families and it's cruel and inhumane to detain the families, what do you do with these wave of migrants entering the country? Well, you've just kind of pinpointed why this is such a difficult problem. So I, I will say something that will probably be unpopular with many of your listen, listeners. We simply cannot have, as long as we have sovereign borders, as long as we have border security, and as long as we don't have open borders, you, you can't have a system of just simply catch and release where people are apprehended by the Border Patrol and released into the interior um, because that will send the message to Central America that basically you come, you're apprehended, and then we re-release you, and then you wait four or five years for your deportation proceeding to proceed. That's not, that's not a tolerable system as long as we have borders and we have to enforce border security. So, so yeah, you're, this, you're not for open borders? Clearly. <laughs> okay. Um, but so as long as we— your as long, fellow hold Democrats? On, hold on. As long as we have the current demographic coming to our country, we have to do something— to know who is coming into the country, uh, screen them for any health concerns, and make intelligent evaluations of risk of flight. There are, there are many people who are appropriate for release on certain terms pending their deportation proceeding and their asylum proceedings, and then there are others who are not. And so I believe that there should be some family detention capability, and it's up to the current administration to get the approval of the judge and wrestle with what is the proper balance between detention of families versus release into the interior? And by the way, family detention, uh, these HHS shelters in Spikes are hugely expensive, and they are budget busters. So right now, we're blowing a hole in the budget of DOJ, DHS, and HHS. But, Jay, based on your op-ed piece um, in The Post, it sounds like ultimately— your view is uh, the, the the only real solution um, to this problem is a kind of a roots cause uh, solution, which is that you have to end uh, these push factors, as you call them, from uh, the so-called Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Honduras, and, and Guatemala. Um, but We've poured a lot of money into those countries, aid money to fight drugs, to deal with corruption and governance and transparency. I think, uh, you know, billions of dollars. Um, what is the evidence that you've seen uh, that, that that actually will be effective and that it's not just a kind of a Sisyphean struggle here? Well, it's only we've only started. We appropriate Congress appropriated $750 million in FY16. There was more money appropriated in 17 and 18, but it's the levels are falling off, and we're only just beginning. And I think very appropriately, there should be certain strings attached. We ought to be sure how the money is being invested. But this is not a this is not a one shot deal in terms of 
eliminating the huge, huge law enforcement challenges, the corruption, the poverty and violence in these three countries. And it needs to be a sustained effort. Otherwise, no matter what you do at our border, in our interior, and the various different controversial methods we may employ are only, at best, short-term if we, I want to ask you, I want to just ask you, I just, hold on, I just want to ask you one, uh, one question about uh, uh, your successor uh, at, uh, at, at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, John Kelly, who then became uh, uh, Trump's chief of staff, but has been um, very involved in, in this policy. Um, he, he said, uh, uh, he has said publicly uh, that a, uh, the, the reason that he um, institute or, or was in favor of, of this family separation policy was because um, of the horrific uh, and, and very dangerous journey um, that uh, these migrants were making um, uh, to, the, to the border where women were raped and abused and, and taken advantage of. Um, he saw that firsthand when he was head of uh, U.S. Southern Command. You alluded to that earlier. Um, do, you, do you take uh, him at his word that, that that was the prime motivation for this, as, as he suggested? And also, I wonder, uh, Jay, if you've actually had a chance to talk to uh, John Kelly or to um, uh, Kristen Nelson, the, the current department, head of uh, DHS, uh, since all of this uh, uh, has, 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 uh, has happened. Well, in the summer of 2014, John Kelly and I together went to Guatemala and talked to the government there. So this was a problem that he and I worked together in 2014 when he was commander of U.S. Southern Command and I was secretary. I I won't comment on private conversations I have with with various people in government, but I think what John was trying to say uh, and what I would have said and what I have said is our principal obligation is to, in office, when you're the secretary of Homeland Security, is to, in the immigration space, enforce border security. We have we have sovereign borders. We have we are a sovereign country. Our obligation is to enforce border security, and we we just have to find a way to do that. We don't have open borders. It is a complicating factor that migrants are taking an exceptionally dangerous journey to get here, but the basic equation that they have all made in their own minds is that it's more dangerous to stay than it is to take the journey. And I've heard that I heard that hundreds of times from children and their moms when I'd asked them, why did you come here and did you not hear the message about the dangers of the journey? And they'd all say, it was more dangerous for me to stay where I was because the gang was going to kill my son. And, and, and that gets to your proposed solution in your op-ed. You said, first, send more aid to Central America. And I guess, you know, my instant reaction to that is if we can't stop rampant violence and murders in Chicago, how are we going to stop them in El Salvador? Well, there's the second step, too. And I'll never forget somebody from, in case you haven't figured this out, <laughs> I my style of governing is was to be very solicitous of people on the outside, including my predecessors, Republican or Democrat, and groups, you know, to find solutions. Someone from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops told me, you cannot padlock a burning building. You have to offer another safe alternative path from the burning building. And so another proposal, which we began working on in the Obama administration, 
was developing neighboring countries as alternatives, Mexico, Belize, Costa Rica, Panama, and encourage them to establish their own system for accepting refugees and evaluating asylum claims so that these migrants have choices. It's not just head north through Mexico to the United States. Uh, we've heard a lot about MS-13. Uh, Attorney General Sessions talks about it uh, 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 quite a bit. Uh, I think uh, the president has referred to its members as animals. Uh, what can you tell us about what you know about MS-13? Does it have a leadership structure? Is it a group that can be dismantled like a drug cartel or a terrorist group? Uh, how does it have such traction in a, a, a Salvadoran gang having such traction in the United States? Well, very clearly there's an international component, but there's also a huge domestic component. And so, you know, the, the way this administration views it, they view it as a a problem with its root in Central America. They come here, they create trouble here. That is true to an extent. But there's also, it also has domestic roots. And then the fact is, there are people we have deported back to Central America who bring the problem back to Central America. So it's multi-dimensional. Um, now, when I was in office, we changed our enforcement priorities to go after the really bad guys. And I told our enforcement and removal operations people headed by Tom Holman, I want you to focus on the convicted criminals. I want you to focus on gang members, the really, really dangerous people. Use your resources to focus on that. Don't just go for the low-hanging fruit. Those apprehended at the border and the dangerous people are the ones we need to focus on. And ICE actually did that. My three years in office actually did that. The level of deportations went down, but those who were convicted criminals, the percentage went up. One of the things I heard from our enforcement and removal operations personnel is that we are not treated like federal law enforcement. We're topped out at GS-9 when everyone else is topped out at GS-13. And I said, deal, we're going to do our best to treat you like federal law enforcement, but I want you to behave like federal law enforcement and go after the bad people. So we changed their pay scale. They did that. And little known fact, morale, as measured by the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey in ICE, went up significantly seven percentage points my last year in office. It was the greatest increase in any one of our DHS components. I don't know whether there's cause and effect there, but we were headed on a certain track to go after the really bad guys, and we were peeling back the resistance from sanctuary jurisdictions to working with us to go after the is bad there, guys. Is there a boss of MS-13? I, I'm, I'm assuming there is. But we, don't, but we don't know Could who I it is. Could I tell you the name of the person? Yeah. Uh, don't know. Somebody in law enforcement might be able to give you the whole org chart. Okay. okay. One quick question uh, on another subject. Um, uh, I was uh, interested to hear when we were talking before b began how you um, started out your career in the U.S. Attorney's Office um, working with, among others, Jim Comey uh, and a lot of other luminaries under the then U.S. Attorney Rudy Giuliani. Um, you uh, no doubt read the uh, uh, blistering Inspector General report about your old friend Jim Comey's conduct uh, uh, that was released last week. Do you agree with the conclusions that he was insubordinate and engaged in uh, extraordinary conduct that Trump administration officials, particularly Rod Rosenstein, say uh, said uh, at the time justified his firing? Well, no, I have not read all 500 pages. Interestingly, as you alluded to, there was a time when all of us were together in the same U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, hired by Rudy Giuliani, me, Jim Comey, 
Michael Horowitz, the inspector general, and a number of other people who went on to do some pretty great things. I will tell you that I did not agree with Jim's decision to go out and do that press conference and say that, in his view, there should not be a prosecution and no reasonable prosecutor would disagree. Frankly, I thought he was out of his lane. Did he justify his firing? Um, I don't, uh, I, I don't, I, I, let me not go there. That's, I don't agree. I did not agree at the time with what he did. I had no advance notice of what he did. Uh, had I had advance notice, I might've picked up the phone and called my friend of 20 some years to say, Hey Jim, are you sure this is right? Which is what I did when I found out he was about to go brief the president elect one-on-one about this dossier. I had a conversation with Jim to warn him. I didn't think that was such a great idea, which Jim has chosen to document in his book. Well, um, some might argue he should have uh, taken your advice or perhaps solicited it earlier. But uh, in any case, uh, Jay Johnson, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery, and I hope you'll come back. Thank you. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. And now uh, we are joined by uh, a congressman uh, very much in the middle of the immigration debate, as well as many other debates of high interest to skullduggery listeners, uh, Eric uh, Swalwell, congressman from California. Welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm excited for uh, what you guys have been doing over the past year. Um, we uh, just had on uh, Jay Johnson, the former secretary of, uh, of DHS, talking about uh, the uh, huge controversy over uh, President Trump's uh, family separation policy, which he has now walked back uh, via executive order. Um, are you satisfied? No, I, I'm not satisfied uh, one bit. You know, there are still... Over 2,000 children who have been separated uh, from their parents uh, who need to be found and reconnected uh, with them as soon as possible. Uh, And also, we need to devote resources to the border uh, so that we can adjudicate asylum cases as quickly as possible. And also make sure that the ports of entry are open uh, and that people are not being blocked from entering our ports of entry and then forced to to enter illegally, uh, which puts them in a, a different uh, set of uh, legal consequences. And so there's a lot more uh, that we can do. Uh, and, you know, I, the president can do all of that uh, without any legislation in Congress. Congressman uh, Swallow, on your your first uh, point, you actually uh, tweeted, uh, this ugly chapter in American history is not closed. And you pointed to the 2,000 plus children who've been, who are still separated from their parents. Do you have any information at all on what the administration is doing to reconnect these families? Because uh, the little bit of reporting I've seen suggests it's pretty chaotic and and questions about whether the left hand knows what the right hand is doing and how quickly they'll be actually be able to reunify these families. We are asking, uh, but we have not been able to obtain answers. And uh, what we have uh, heard is that you know many parents have been sent back to their countries, uh, which makes it all the more difficult uh, for a child in the United States uh, to find a parent uh, who is on a, a journey uh, back through Mexico down into uh, Central America, where many of the families uh, have come from. And so that, that's what worries me the most, is that uh, you could have situations where uh, it, it would be quite hard to ever uh, reconnect and reunify the family. So that, I'm sorry, so that some of these fam- parents have been sent back, but their children are still in, in the United States? Yes, we, we, we've, read, we've read accounts uh, of that, and our immigration team 
uh, in our district. And I, I represent quite a diverse district uh, in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area with a, a large uh, Hispanic population, and, and you know we've had those uh, stories passed along to us as well. So you know we're we're trying we're pressing DHS uh, to also find out uh, you know what the plan is to uh, reconnect uh, children with their parents, and hoping that that is uh, just as much of a priority as not separating them when they present at the border. Congressman, do you accept that there should be consequences for those uh, uh, who enter the country illegally at the southern border? And if so, what should they be? Yeah, so the way I see this, uh, Michael, is that if you come to the border and you are fleeing violence or you're fleeing abject poverty uh, and you're not able to return, you, know, you should be able to go through uh, the asylum process and have your case uh, heard uh, quickly without your family being uh, disrupted. Uh, now, if, if you are, you know, not crossing uh, the legal means uh, and you don't have an asylum case uh, to present, uh, yes, of course, uh, you should be uh, turned back. Uh, but I also think this should is you be prosecuted? To... Should you be prosecuted? I, I don't like the idea of, of criminally prosecuting individuals. I understand, you know, I understand you can't allow people who don't go through the uh, legal means uh, to stay. Uh, but, you know, criminally prosecuting uh, individuals, I, I think is it's harsh now. You know, we have legislation uh, that passed the House, didn't pass the Senate, uh, that would go after people who repeatedly come uh, undocumented and don't have asylum cases. And, you know, I, I guess I can understand, you know, repeated visitors wanting to make it clear to them that you can't uh, do that. But I think we need to show compassion and understand that there are larger issues at play than people wanting to come to the United States and, and take something away from us. It's that uh, they are fleeing the worst possible uh, environment that many of us can't even imagine, uh, and we want to handle that uh, humanely, uh, compassionately, uh, but also orderly. So, uh, Congressman, um, the situation that the Trump administration is in now, now that they've rescinded this policy of separating families, is that children and their parents will be together, but together in these detention facilities. And uh, based on the uh, the current law and the the, the uh, uh, consent decree that governs these uh, these questions, uh, they really can't stay in these facilities together uh, f- for more than twenty days. So uh, the Trump Justice Department is going to challenge that. Uh, do you think that? Um, the, uh, the judge should uh, should allow them to stay in these facilities together for longer? Or do you think, are you okay with uh, going back to the Obama policy, which is then release, just releasing them and, and telling them when to show, back, show up back in court? Yeah, I, I want to limit as much as possible uh, how long any family has to stay uh, in essentially a cage or a kennel-like uh, facility. And ideally, you can adjudicate within 20 days if you cannot, but there are still outstanding questions about the asylum claim. I do believe that we have resources uh, like ankle monitoring. I met with the family in my district a couple weeks ago. Uh, they were there at the facility for uh, a couple weeks, uh, did not involve children, uh, and they were ultimately released, were given an ankle monitor, uh, and then had their asylum case uh, granted. Uh, and, you know, they, they proved to be, you know, certainly eligible for asylum and ultimately won uh, the case on the merits. And so I, I would like to see us consider that. Uh, as an option. And also, uh, there, there's a very high rate of return of asylum seekers, uh, well over 90% of returning to court uh, when they are supposed to. So this idea that people would, would come into the United States and never be heard of or seen again it is false. It, it actually, uh, the, the numbers suggest that they do go back to court when they're supposed to, and they do 
you know, follow the system uh, that is in place. You know, when we uh, were talking to uh, Jay Johnson earlier, uh, he made the point uh, that he said he had learned from his predecessor, one of his predecessors, Michael Chertoff, that um, uh, migrations uh, into the United States are very market sensitive in the sense that they react to what perceived policies uh, are or are going to be. And um, uh, if one, if we, if the government adopted your view that um, uh, at least first time uh, uh, illegal uh, crossings into the United States should not be prosecuted, wouldn't that send a message uh, that would encourage yet more migrants to enter the country um, and exacerbate the problem? Well, I, I remember working with Secretary Johnson. Uh, back in 2014 and 2015, when we had the unaccompanied minor crisis, I went down to McAllen, Texas, and toured the facilities down there. And, and I'm aware uh, of what he's referring to, which was that at the time, uh, the, the DREAM Act was being perverted uh, by some uh, cartels in Central American countries to suggest that if you send your kids to the United States, you know, they could be uh, let in uh, and stay. And then that was why many you know, families fearing that their children would die to gang violence uh, and the cartels were sending their kids. Uh, and, and certainly that was a, a reality on the ground uh, that we had to deal with. But I also believe that it's the conditions on the ground in those countries that drive the decision more than anything else. And, uh, you know, my, my wife reminded me uh, the other day, she said, uh, you know, if a family uh, puts themselves uh, in a boat and leaves land, it's because they think the water is safer uh, than the land, and she had read me a quote uh, where she had uh, seen that, and I, I think that's quite true. That if we don't address the economic and security conditions in these countries uh, through foreign aid and working with our uh, allies in South and Central America, uh, we're going to continue to see a, a crisis like this, uh, driven by, uh, just as Secretary Johnson pointed out, uh, you know, market forces and realities on the ground. Um, Congressman, you sit on the uh, House Intelligence Committee. You've been um, one of those most involved on the Democratic side in the investigation uh, into uh, Russia's interference in the election and um, any links to the Trump campaign. Um, We are all awaiting and have been for some time what special counsel Mueller is going to do. Do you expect to see a report from him uh, shortly on uh, the question of obstruction of justice? I'd love that, Michael, but I'm also cognizant of how long these investigations take. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we're dealing with, as you well know from you know, the book that you've written and the coverage uh, that you've been involved in. Russian Roulette, by the way, is the title. Just Russian Roulette. <laughs> it's sitting on my desk, actually, uh, yeah. right here. <laughs> Listeners uh, who haven't heard it before, go ahead. So mul- multiple, multiple foreign uh, countries involved, uh, you know, dozens if not hundreds of foreigners uh, involved, a foreign government, uh, foreign language, uh, foreign currencies, uh, and just dozens of individuals whose communication logs, bank records, travel records, uh, we would hope that the special counsel would need to obtain. And then, of course, just the number of witnesses you have to interview. And then, as we've seen, many witnesses have lied. And when you lie, the investigators have to go back to the evidence they have or request new evidence and then confront you in a second or a third, as in the case of George Papadopoulos, a third interview. And so uh, it takes time. Uh, you, you hope that you have voluntary production when a grand jury subpoena is sent over to 
uh, a third party like, say, Google or uh, Facebook or, you know, Verizon. Uh, but if they don't want to cooperate or they, you know, put up uh, restrictions, then you have to litigate that. And so it, it takes a lot of time. Uh, I, I think special counsel with the, I think, 20 people who have been indicted, the half dozen guilty pleas, uh, and the trial that set this fall with Paul Manafort is moving quite expeditiously. Uh, but, of course, we'd love to see them uh, move faster, but not uh, so fast that they are missing uh, evidence that is out there or not able to test uh, the stories of so many people who are not worthy of just being taken at their word. Uh, Congressman Swalwell, speaking of, of uh, uh, people who some some might think are not worthy of being taken at their word, the Washington Post uh, broke a story uh, recently about Roger Stone, um, the former advisor to uh, Donald Trump and self-described dirty trickster from the Watergate era. Uh, and what they reported was that Stone uh, had a meeting uh, with a Russian named Henry Greenberg who was offering uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton in exchange for $2 million. Now, uh, uh, Roger Stone testified um, under oath uh, before the uh, House Intelligence Committee. I take it that's a story that um, he, he did not tell you at the time. That's correct. Uh, and so did Mr. Caputo. Michael Caputo. Yeah. Michael Caputo set up the meeting for Roger Stone. Both of them uh, were interviewed in the summer and fall of 2017. And they were interviewed quite, uh, they, they were interviewed a long time after we first requested to interview with them, meaning that a letter was sent to both of them. It, it laid out the scope of what we wanted to talk to them about, which was primarily Russian contacts that they had. And they had a long time to prepare with their lawyers. They both came in with lawyers. So based on my experience of examining witnesses, I concluded that uh, they had prepared and they knew what we were going to ask. And so to say that there was a failure of memory uh, by both individuals to recall this meeting, uh, I just don't buy it. I, I think well, they just lied through their teeth to protect the fact that they were willing and eager to take a meeting with Russians who were offering dirt. Well, now that would lie if you lie through your teeth or if you lie at all under oath in front of a uh, congressional committee, uh, you've exposed yourself to perjury. So do you think that Roger Stone perjured himself in his testimony or Michael Caputo? Except when you are testifying in this Republican-led House Intelligence Committee, which will not turn over the transcripts to Bob Mueller or to the public. So they are shielded by Republicans who will not uh, allow Mueller's team uh, to see the transcript. Wait a second, has Mueller asked for that testimony? You know, I, I'm, I can't go into that. I, I can just tell you that we have requested, uh, Mr. Schiff has requested uh, to Devin Nunes that we be able to send over to special counsel uh, some of the crimes that we believe were committed through failure to recall or just straight out, you know, deception that we saw. And uh, the Nunes, the Nunes uh, team has refused uh, to cooperate with us on that. And uh, at least send him over uh, to Mueller. And so, a, yes, I, I do believe I do believe that they're that both Caputo and uh, Stone uh, it, it, that special counsel should be able to look at that uh, for perjury. As as a constitutional legal matter, does Mueller have the authority to um, get your the testimony before your committee? Now, if if you recall, just a couple weeks ago, the Senate had to vote to allow the Department of Justice to review documents they had with respect to the Senate security director on the Intelligence Committee, right. uh, which represents, you know, the boundaries that are set uh, among the different branches of government. And so uh, it's our belief that 
there are Article I equities at stake here, but that we could waive those equities uh, by voting and agreeing that Mueller could have uh, the transcripts. And I don't know why uh, Chairman Nunes would want to protect anyone, whether it was a Democratic witness or a Republican witness uh, from perjury. So, I mean, now, just to be clear, uh, I think both Caputo and uh, uh, Stone have said they sent letters to your, to, uh, your committee correcting the record, saying they had forgotten about nearly this a year meeting. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Nearly yeah. a year later. Uh, and and, and only, after so. they, only after Caputo interviewed with special counsel. So that does not uh, take away your conclusion that they, quote, lied through their teeth. No, no, um, no, no. I, uh, I, I really believe that they, uh, you know, they were confronted by special counsel uh, on this contact. Caputo uh, tells Stone uh, about it, which also raises its own questions, that if, if witnesses are going into the special counsel uh, office to be interviewed and then they're telling other witnesses uh, evidence that exists in the case uh, and that they may want to clean up uh, their testimony. I mean, that, I, I think, paints uh, the credibility uh, of those witnesses. And you also haven't heard from Randy Credico, uh, who Stone has identified as his intermediary with WikiLeaks, uh, a, a, something that Credico himself on this show, Skullduggery, has disputed. Um, does that add to your uh, larger picture here that Stone was in fact having contacts with various actors who are central to this story and has concealed it from the committee. Yes. Uh, And also, it's not clear uh, what Stone was telling uh, Donald Trump. Uh, We have very good reason to believe he was in routine contact with candidate uh, Trump. And so if Roger Stone was learning information uh, from WikiLeaks or Guccifer 2.0, who he was in contact with, or people uh, like Mr. Goldberg, the Russian uh, down in South Florida, and then passing Greenberg, along to candidate Trump, uh, that, you know, this would be, you know, yeah, Mr. Greenberg, that this would be quite concerning if, uh, the, the can- if candidate Trump knew uh, about these different efforts the Russians were taking uh, to help his campaign. But it would also explain a lot of the cryptic tweets and statements that uh, candidate Trump made throughout the summer of 2016, that, that many, many of them pointed out also uh, in Russian roulette. So your theory of the case then is that Stone was in contact with Russians uh, and WikiLeaks was communicating that to Trump uh, and that guided uh, some of what Trump was saying on the campaign trail and in his tweets. Stone is a self-proclaimed dirty trickster. He was close with Donald Trump. He was communicating with individuals associated uh, with the Russian hacks. Uh, it, it would be very hard for me to believe that he was, if he was in contact with Donald Trump uh, regularly throughout the summer of 2016 and the fall, that he would not be passing along to Mr. Trump his efforts to obtain Hillary Clinton's deleted emails or efforts that were passed along to him that others were taking to obtain. The- and, I, and I assume, uh, Congressman, that you don't put much stock uh, in uh, Roger Stone's contention that uh, this whole uh, business with the the meeting with Henry Greenberg in Florida was an attempt by the FBI to frame him, as he has said. But, you know, I, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't have any information on that uh, at all. But what that what what is important to me is that he was presented with a Russian contact. He was asked about it, and he didn't tell the committee uh, about it, which is an intention, I think, to conceal. And I believe the reason he and Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner and Michael Cohen and so many others who 
were talking to Russians or working on Russian deals thought to conceal is that they didn't want people to know they were eager to work with the Russians. Your your committee's investigation is, for all intents and purposes, over, correct? I mean, uh, there's no further No, hearings? no, no, not at all. Okay, No, the, uh, we, we have met uh, with recently with Christopher Wiley. Uh, we're continuing to engage with him uh, on documents that can be helpful in our investigation. And we have uh, future witnesses that I, I think will be announced uh, in the, the coming days, if, if not week, uh, that do tell we'll to, uh, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity here. I, we will I, as soon as as soon as it's uh, allowed to be made public. I'll make sure. Okay, I'm a little uh, confused because the the Republicans, uh, your Republican colleagues, release their report um, uh, indicating they had reached their conclusions. That's why I. Uh, uh, had believed that the investigation was for all intents and purposes over. And to us, it's not over. And that, that was irresponsible to so prematurely put out a report. And what happened after they put out the report, we saw, you know, we learned a lot more about Michael Cohen and how much of a shadowy operator uh, he had been uh, during the pendency of the campaign. We learned more and more about Cambridge uh, Analytica and, you know, connections that they had uh, to, uh, WikiLeaks, uh, as well as other meddling that they had done uh, in other uh, countries' elections. And so we learn more and more every day about uh, contacts that are quite concerning that the Trump team had uh, with Russia throughout the campaign. And so uh, we will go as far as we can. We, don't have this, we do not have subpoena power, uh, but we do have witnesses who, I think, for the sake of our democracy and want to do the right thing, uh, who have offered to come forward and provide information. And we're going to continue to do that until we get the answers we want. Based on everything that you've seen in the more than now year and a half of the committee's investigation, um, uh, based on what you know now, um, are there grounds to bring articles of impeachment against President Trump? I would like to be able to have the subpoena power uh, because we know that a number of witnesses, as I said, have have lied or concealed uh, their contacts. We know there was an intent to work with the Russians, and whether it was a you know a completed bank robbery or an attempted bank robbery, you know an, an attempt is still a violation of the law, and uh, it sure looks like an attempt uh, to conspire against the United States. But because impeachment is the the harshest remedy. I think you want to present to the American people and our colleagues an impenetrable case. And the best way to do that would be to have subpoena power, to look at communication logs, to look at bank records, to look at travel records, uh, and be able to show uh, and really tighten up the case uh, to prove it beyond uh, you know, any reasonable doubt uh, that people would have. So that means that, you, that your view is that you, uh, you need to, uh, the Democrats need to win back the House so that you can get subpoena power. Uh, and uh, and then have a much more robust investigation than you think there's been so far. If if these questions are not answered uh, by the time we win the House, God willing, uh, then yes, I, I think it is our responsibility to answer right. those questions. Right. And when that happens, we look forward to having you back on Skullduggery. But we've uh, but we went if or when that happens. But uh, we're going to have to wrap it up now. So thank you, Congressman Swalwell, for for joining us on Skullduggery. Uh, great conversation. Of course, thank we'll you. Talk guys. to you soon. So, uh, Danny, I liked uh, some of what we heard from Swalwell there uh, lying through his teeth 
he said about uh, uh, Roger Stone, uh, uh, Stone's testimony before his committee. Yeah, definitely not uh, pulling his uh, punches. Um, and um, clearly uh, believes that um, there is uh, a potential perjury case against Stone. And I thought it was interesting um, where when he talked about um, the, uh, the, uh, the majority of the Republicans, Devin Nunes, not allowing Mueller uh, to see uh, that, uh, that testimony, um, which clearly he thinks could be, um, you know, part of Mueller's investigation. Um, so be interesting to, I, I actually, you raised the question. I don't know the answer whether, um, Mueller could actually subpoena the committee. I know there'd be a huge, yeah, I think there's um, separation of power, separations of power, yeah. uh, issue there. So Mueller probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do it. Um, but you know, when the word is out there that, uh, that the committee has this, um, testimony um, that Mueller uh, and his team are investigating all of these questions, and yet he can't get a key piece of the evidence. You know, uh, maybe maybe Swalwell and Democrats on the committee are going to try to uh, b- build a, a, a public case for this, put some pressure on the committee uh, to turn that information over. But uh, uh, they may be immune to that kind of pressure. Actually, I thought uh, uh, the most revealing part uh, was when I asked him about uh, uh, whether there were grounds for impeachment. And did you notice his long pause in answering? <laughs> I did notice that. <laughs> yes. I did notice that. It just shows yeah. the, the fine line these Democrats are trying to walk here. Um I think uh, uh, those like Swalwell and Schiff and others would be itching to go in that route, but they've basically been ordered he, by Pelosi. I think he, Don't talk I, right, about. I, I was going to say. I think he can hear Nancy Nancy Pelosi's dulcet tones in his ear, yeah. uh, and he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of of the leadership. Uh, but uh, everything about his his tone. Um, and uh, I was going to say body language, but we couldn't see him, uh, suggests <laughs> that he would aggressively yeah. uh, go after um, uh, Trump uh, with, with impeachment charges. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Well, we here in Skullduggery don't care about getting on the wrong side of any leadership, um, which, is, uh, <laughs> which is our credo. Um, anyway, um, uh, good show, and we'll be back next week. Thanks to Jay Johnson and Congressman Eric Swalwell for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. 